Jason Molina's Blue Factory Flame, live in 2000. Hello and welcome to the third installment of The Melancholy of Class, a podcast about texts, philosophical, theoretical, and literary, that have been formative to my understanding of social class. Each of these texts have been important to me for a myriad of reasons, one of which is that the texts help me to better understand social class and my own place within it. Furthermore, each of these works provided language and concepts that can help us begin to think about the place of the working class, and furthermore, provide ways for us to survive without assimilating. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing Walter Benjamin's essay on some motifs in Baudelaire. In this 45-page essay, Benjamin writes about the role of the philosopher capitalism, though he does not uh, use the term, the working class, he doesn't use the term here either. Proust, Baudelaire, Freud, the shock of modern life, living in the city, memory, and the newspaper industry, among other topics. Today we will be focusing exclusively on his writing about memory. Benjamin's writing is notoriously complex. In his writing he will posit, for instance, one idea, then another, without mediation or as I mentioned a moment ago, with regard to capitalism and the working class, he will he will often write about topics by description, resulting resisting naming or mediating a type of writing he will describe in this essay. As a result of his elliptical writing, readers can find themselves on one hand stuck between Benjamin's dialectics, the, the seemingly opposite ideas, or conversely, readers experience Benjamin's work as lyrical, akin to poetry, experimental, apolitical, a beautiful encounter, and so on. Neither of these extremes is sufficient. Benjamin's work takes time, hence the deliberate difficulty of the text, which serves as a deterrent to lazy reading. But before we begin, I want to tell you about a dream I had or rather, about my experience with the dream. Last summer, I began seeing a new psychoanalyst, a Lacanian. Though I've been in and out of all sorts of therapies for most of my adult life, I have never been able to work through my childhood trauma. My goal with this new analysis was explicitly to begin to integrate the experiences I had as a child. What this means, to put it plainly, is that though I can tell her or you what happened, though I can recall images in my mind of what occurred, there are no emotions connected to these experiences. The emotions have been repressed through a number of symptoms. What I mean by this is that the emotions I was unable to experience as a child because they would have been too overwhelming remain within me, in my mind and in my body where they were stored instead in my unconscious. They are repressed. In their place are a number of symptoms. For instance, directly following one of the traumatic experiences, I became aware of my body and began restricting what I ate. And though I'm grateful for these symptoms, which saved me from the initial trauma, these symptoms now hold emotions that ought to be connected to the initial experiences. In other words, I have the memories and I have the emotions, but the emotions are repressed and kept at bay through the symptoms. The anxiety and fear I should have felt is now tethered to food and eating. My experiences of the trauma have been sublimated, rerouting, you might say, to other fears, for instance, what function as placeholders for the original trauma. Back to the dream. 
And psychoanalysis dreams are important because it is in the unconscious where all the things I don't want to think or feel are repressed. Thoughts and memories my psyche cannot handle are forced down into my unconscious where they remain. And yet, these repressed memories and thoughts haunt my days and my nights. In analysis, I speak freely without thinking, and in turn, my analyst will repeat words or phrases I say that may be clues to what I have repressed. For instance, when I said, I don't understand, in analysis, my analyst reminded me that I had said the exact same phrase during our initial meeting when describing aspects of my childhood. This phrase, I don't understand, can be understood as a kind of message akin to a small condensed poem, my unconscious is sending me. By recognizing these patterns of speech, phrases I speak without being aware of speaking them, I am able slowly to begin to recognize patterns and, as a result, begin to organize what had seemed previously enigmatic to me. Dreams are also important in psychoanalysis because dreams are constru constructed entirely of the unconscious, which is to say, they contain a series of symbols that represent meanings in the extreme form of condensation. In other words, our dreams are like poems constructed from our unconscious. Back to the dream. So, I woke up from a nightmare unlike any I had experienced before. It was terrifying, and no, don't worry, I'm not going to describe it to you, except to say it was so terrifying that when I awoke from it, though I knew the dream was over and I was no longer within the dream, the feelings I had in the dream stayed with me. It took me a good hour to recover. And though the nightmare was awful, I knew what had occurred my having had the dream, terrifying as it was, indeed a good was indeed a good thing because its occurrence meant that something was working. The dream was terrifying because it was a disguised reenactment of the trauma I experienced as a small child. My unconscious created the dream for me from the repressed emotions it then disguised. As a result, I was able to experience the trauma I was not fully able to, or not at all able to, experience as a child due to the overwhelming nature of the traumatic event. Like a trace or remainder, the terror I felt after waking from the nightmare, the strange sensation that I was still inside the dream, though I was now awake, was the experience of the original trauma, but not obviously an actual reenactment of it. I didn't relieve the original trauma event. I had a nightmare that simulated the emotional experience of that trauma. In other words, there were two aspects of my dream, the concrete aspect of the dream, what happened, who was in it, and the experience of the dream, how I experienced what was happening in the dream. These were the facts, what might be described as a kind of outline. I'm sorry, there were the facts, what might be described as a kind of outline, and then there was the experience, which I awoke with, an experience I realized upon waking I would not be able to put into words. The experience was visceral, how I felt, and not translated, not translatable into everyday fact-based language. I can tell you I felt scared, terrified, but these words are vague and generic. They motion to no particular event, and they are unable to fully convey the actual experience. In his essay on some motifs in Baudelaire, Walter Benjamin writes about the Baudelaire writes about Baudelaire and Poe, crowds and shock, but in the first half of the essay he writes about Proust. Specifically, he describes Proust's book In Search of Lost Time as an attempt to produce experience synthetically. Benjamin writes, Where there is experience, erfahrung, in the strict sense of the word, certain contents of the individual's past combine in the memory, gedachtnis, with material from the collective past. That term, collective past, is just so lovely, I have to repeat it. In the essay, Benjamin writes about Proust and his attempts to conjure memory. Benjamin describes two kinds of memory, memoir volontaire and memoir involuntaire, and he explains that though Proust, Proust attempted to, he was never able to recall his childhood memories through force of will. Instead, by chance, when eating a madeleine, a cookie, he was flooded by memories of his upbringing. Of Proust, Benjamin writes the following. The first pages of his great work, In Search of Lost Time, are charged with making this relationship between memoir volontaire and memoir involuntaire clear. 
In the reflection, which introduces the term, Proust tells us how poorly for many years he remembered the town of Cambrai, in which, after all, he has spent part of his childhood. One afternoon, the taste of a kind of pastry called Madeline, which he later mentions often, transported him back to the past, whereas before then he had been limited to the promptings of a memory which obeyed the call of attentiveness. This he calls Memoir Volontaire, and it is its characteristic that the information which it gives about the past lives no leaves no trace at all. Quoting Proust, Benjamin writes, It is the same with our own past. In vain we try to conjure it up again. The efforts of our intellect are futile. I'm now going to read you an excerpt from Proust from the text Swan's Way, Volume 1, for a sense of what Benjamin is alluding to. I feel that there is much to be said for the Celtic belief that the souls of those whom we have lost are held captive in some inferior being, in an animal, in a plant, in some inanimate object, and so effectively lost to us until the day, which to many never comes, when we happen to pass by the tree or to obtain possession of the object which forms their prison. Then they start and tremble. They call us by our name, and as soon as we have recognized their voice, the spell is broken. We have delivered them. They have overcome death and returned to share our life. And so it is with our own past. It is a labor in vain to attempt to recapture it. All the efforts of our intellect must prove futile. The past is hidden somewhere outside the realm, beyond the reach of intellect, and some material object and the sensation which that material object will give us, which we do not suspect. And as for that object, it depends on chance whether we come upon it or not before we ourselves must die. Many years had elapsed during which nothing of Cambrai, save what was comprised in the theater and the drama of my going to bed there, had any existence for me when, one day in winter, as I came home, my mother, seeing that I was cold, offered me some tea a thing I did not ordinarily take. I declined at first, and then for no particular reason, changed my mind. She sent out for one of those short, plump little cakes called Petit Madeleines, which look as though they had been molded in the fluted scallop of a pilgrim's shell. And soon, mechanically, wary after a dull day with the prospect of a depressing morrow, I raised to my lips a spoonful of the tea in which I had soaked a morsel of the cake. No sooner had the warm liquid and the crumbs with it touched my palate, a shudder ran through my whole body, and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary changes that were taking place. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, but individual, detached, with no suggestion of its origin. And at once the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory. This new sensation having had on me the effect which love has of filling me with the precious essence, or rather, this essence was not in me, it was myself. I ceased now to feel mediocre, accidental, mortal. Whence could it have come to me, this all-powerful joy? I was conscious that it was connected with the taste of tea and cake, but that it infinitely transcended those savors, could not indeed be of the same nature as theirs. Whence did it come? What did it signify? How could I seize upon it? and define it. Returning to my dream, we might compare memoir volontaire, the type of memory we are able to recall by force of will, to the facts of the dream, the people and the events that actually occur in the dream. In contrast, memoir and volontaire can be likened to the experience I had in the dream and then after the dream when I woke. The visceral, pre-verbal sense I had, the strong emotion that remained with me after I woke, that kept me awake. Similarly, when I think back to my own childhood, I can remember moments which appear like snapshots in my mind. The gingerbread house my mother made from cardboard and gumdrops. Pizza party at Straw Hat Pizza where I dressed like Annie Oakley and rode the electric horse. The Halloween costumes my mother made for me, my siblings by hand. My brother as astronaut, my sister and I as leopards. These memories come to me when I call to them, but they are mere images or snapshots, mere outlines or placeholders. They are not the experiences, how I felt, what I smelled, how my body felt in that moment, and the affect of the experience is missing. 
Our experiences are stored inside the body and the mind and are not retrievable by force of will. But like Proust and his Madeline, such traces may be brought up to the surface to my conscious by accident. What Benjamin describes as memoir volunteer is a result of moments of life we do not experience. When, for example, we encounter trauma. This can be compared to Ford's concept of what happens when one experiences shock, when what is happening is too much for our psyche to handle. When this happens, memory is shocked from consciousness. The experience remains, but the memory vanishes. And the memory, though recorded in our minds, remains oppressed, repressed, removed from its original event. In his essay, Benjamin moves from writing about Proust to writing about Baudelaire. In Baudelaire, he finds another example of writing that combines both types of memory. Baudelaire wove both types of memory in his work to ensure that the reader saw the material world he wished to describe, the world of poverty and its inherent despair, but also that we experience it, that the descriptions he gives of the poverty he's living in do not appear as something sensational and exotic, but rather as the writers, which is to say our shared lived experience. In Baudelaire's poems, there is no context, no explanation. When, for instance, he is inside the urban crowd, he does not tell us he is inside the crowd. Rather, he describes the experience as it is experienced. I'll read for you now Baudelaire's poem, The Eyes of the Poor. The Eyes of the Poor. Ah, so you would like to know why I hate you today. It will certainly be harder for you to understand than for me to explain, for you are, I believe, the most perfect example of feminine impermeability that exists. We had spent a long day together, which to me had seemed short. We had duly promised each other that all our thoughts should be shared in common, and that our two souls henceforth be but one, a dream which, after all, has nothing original about it, except that, although dreamed by every man on earth, it has been realized by none. That evening, a little tired, you wanted to sit down in front of a new cafe, forming the corner of a new boulevard still littered with rubbish, but that already displayed proudly its unfinished splendors. The cafe was dazzling, even the gas burned with all the ardor of a debut, debut and lighted with all its might, the blinding whiteness of the walls, the expanse of mirrors, the gold cornices and moldings, fat-checked pages dragged along by hounds on leash, laughing ladies with falcons on their wrists, nymphs and goddesses bearing on their heads, piles of fruits, pâtés and game, hebs and ganymedes holding out little amphoras of syrups or party-colored ices, all history and all mythology pandering to gluttony. On the street directly in front of us, a worthy man of about forty with tired face and graying beard was standing holding a small boy by the hand and carrying on his arm another little thing still too weak to walk. He was, placing, he was playing nursemaid, taking the children for an evening stroll. They were in rags. The three faces were extraordinarily serious, and those six eyes stared fixedly at the new cafe with admiration, equal in degree, but differing in kind according to their ages. The eyes of the father said, How beautiful it is! How beautiful it is! All the gold of the poor world must have found its way onto those walls. The eyes of a little boy, How beautiful it is! How beautiful it is! But it is a house where only people who are not like us can go. As for the baby, he was much too fascinated to express anything but joy, utterly stupid and profound. Songwriters say that pleasure ennobles the soul and softens the heart. The song was right that evening as far as I was concerned. Not only was I touched by this family of eyes, but I was even a little ashamed of our glasses and decanters, too big for a thirst. I turned my eyes to look into yours, dear love, to read my thought in them, and as I plunged my eyes into your eyes, so beautiful and so curiously soft, into those green eyes, home of caprice and governed by the moon, you said, those people are insufferable with their great saucer eyes, can't you tell the proprietor to send them away? 
So you see how difficult it is to understand one another, my dear angel, how incommunicable thought is even between two people in love. All right, so that was a lot. I'm going to give us a little break. I'm going to play another song of Jason Molina's, and you can go get something to drink or something to eat or go make a smoke a cigarette, and I will meet you on the other side of the song. Don't take but one thing to be your truth. You said, Don't take but one thing to be your truth. When I'm back on. Welcome back. That was Back on Top by Jason Molina. 
So going back to the Baudelaire and Ganyi, um, and I've talked about this before, but I can't talk about it often enough. If one has access to leisure time, time in which one is able to do nothing, dead time or dumb time, time to waste, time to daydream, to do nothing. Such time-wasting activities can bring about instances akin to Proust's chance encounter with the Madeleine. What I'm describing, though, is not the same time of wasting of time that we do when we zone out online. Spending hours on social media or shopping or otherwise surfing online. When we're wasting time online, for instance, or binge-watching Netflix or Amazon Prime shows, our attention is fixed elsewhere. We are caught in a kind of hypnosis. Just a word about hypnosis. I've been thinking about hypnosis, not actual hypnosis, but uh, work that is hypnotic and how there are certain types that, that can do this. So, for instance, when I'm writing poetry or watch or listening to certain songs, especially on repeat, there is a hypnotic effect that actually is um, constructive. So even though it's repetitive, there is an incremental um move forward that has to do with the depth of it right so if I keep doing the same thing over and over even though you can see that it's um it's it's not moving me forward it actually is in terms of the um the <laughs> this sounds like the stacking of repetition in a way moves me forward in an incremental way that is possibly I think uh and that's something I'm thinking about a lot lately much more um uh a much more profound movement forward than something that's hasty and quick. In any case, that kind of hypnosis is different, um, I'm arguing right now, than, for example, watching Netflix. Because something else I've been thinking about a lot is if I'm watching a Netflix series, for example, and this is very addictive, or any of these kind of um, uh, mostly online experiences that have been created for us through a Silicon Valley or Silicon Valley types, um, Right. So they've been thinking about um, addiction and how to get me drawn in and keep coming back. Right. And so what they're doing is constructing something um, that forsakes my own imagination. Right. So when I'm watching these shows or when I'm online in this um, social media world, I'm no longer using my own imagination. I've been pulled into this um, sort of prepackaged, commodified imagination, sort of like Disney um, contemporary Disney production, um, and then I lose my imagination, and I certainly am not um, caught in that. I'm no longer able to waste time, as in then there's no more space, because it's been filled in by these um, these people who have created these spaces for me. It's a bit like augmented reality. Um, so where was I? So, so there are these two different types of hypnotics. I mean, smoking cigarettes, I think, for me, I don't do that now because it's too addictive or I get too addicted, but um, it also has a kind of hypnotic effect, but one that opens me up to um, to wasting time, right? Sitting out on the porch, smoking cigarettes for hours, doing nothing else. I'm able then to think about things and meet these corners. So I might think about uh, a song, I might think about a movie, and the next thing I know I'm thinking about um, something that happened when I was small, and then there's sort of this... Um, this world that unfolds from my own experience that is very constructive, which is not the same as tapping into a pre-constructed universe um, that has um, hits, you know, addictive hits already constructed into it. Um, so um, we're, we're wasting time online, for instance, or binge watching Netflix shows or other, you know, whatever. Um, Amazon Prime or Hula or whatever, our attention is fixed elsewhere. That word fixed is really important because for me, at least when I watch these series, I, I cannot stop, right? I am fixed into this thing. Um, and I'm caught in a kind of hypnosis, a bad one, I would say. Though we are all zoned out, we are at the same time being kept busy, right? I'm being pulled back in over and over. I can't not do it. And I'm wasting time in a different way. There's nothing constructive. This kind of busyness is also the kind of busyness we're usually engaged in in our day-to-day -day lives if we work and live in the 21st century. And I should say if we work, and especially for those of us who um, 
are working many jobs and just barely getting by. So do you see that what we're being offered as a um, form of leisure or rest is actually just a kind of simulacra of what we're already being forced to do during the day, if that makes any sense. Our leisure time is being um, colonized and sold back to us as a kind of simulacra of the work we're already having to do. Um, so yeah, this is especially so if we're working more than one job, especially these um, if you're adjuncting a number of jobs and you have no security net or you're um, being forced to deliver food or um, ring things up or any of these kinds of jobs um, where you're just barely getting by, right? Then you go home to relax and the relax is actually um, not relaxing, right? It's just another form of this busyness and your imagination is not set free and, you know, related to this whole conversation, when I'm doing that, when I'm watching these shows or I'm online, there's no way I can access these um, unconscious memories. They remain hidden, right? I need to have downtime, dead time, dumb time, where I'm doing nothing, just letting my mind wander for hours in order to access that. Um, the effort, physical and mental, let alone the psychic energy it takes to work a number of low-paying jobs will necessarily keep us in a never-ending loop of busyness and worry. And this is even more so the case if we're also responsible for others. So it's important to say here that leisure and leisure time is a luxury. And it's something I write about in the melancholy of class, of course. Um, it's only the middle class who have access to leisure time. It is constructed into their lives. There's something, too, about the object, the specificity of the object that, though counterintuitive, is in fact related to the inclusion of memoir involuntary. So now I'm thinking about um, the Proust and the Madeleine, but also of um, Baudelaire. And there's that section in that, that poem I read you where there's just this list of objects. And so this is something that I think and write about often that by including these objects without mediation, without um, offering any explanation, the reader and the writer, the creator, are dropped into this um, actual lived experience. This, the object is very important. Seeing the world means being alive to it, and it is only through this being awake, not distracted by the internet or in a trance of busyness, that this kind of precision can even occur. For instance, there is this ideology of optimism, I'm sure you're all aware, this idea, you know, everything is fine, and the other option is complete nihilism, everything sucks, so why bother, and I feel like we're in this kind of um, binary of those two sort of ideologies. And often I think that they actually work at the same time. So I meet a lot of students who actually um, exist in both of those realms. We tend to not see the world as it is though, right? So uh, walking by a homeless person, women and children without even noticing, this happens all the time in the city, or um, universally not even knowing what is happening in the world, right? There are children starving in our own country, on the, my own block, disproportionate numbers of the poor and working class becoming sick, dying of COVID. What I mean to say is that we, are, if we are checked out, numb, in these kinds of various forms of um, bad hypnosis, we'll call them, we cannot be in the now, and being in the now is what is necessary in order to see what is happening. Which is necessary, right, to convey um, reality and also if we're not uh, tuned to what is happening in the moment, then, um, then we can't be aware of our own unconscious calling to us. But back to the object. The inclusion of an object, an object that carries meaning, the inexplicable, experiential, and here I'm talking of course of the objective correlative, including such objects in our work both grounds the work in the concrete material world while at the same time imbuing the work with the experiential. When, for instance, I include my father's black leather work boots, a photograph of my mother as a child in white ballet stockings and cream leotard practicing ballet in the backyard in the iron town she grew up in, you get a sense of the world I'm attempting to transmit without my ever saying so, right? You get the actual um, experiential of it. And hopefully not just the material world, but also the feel, the smell, and the emotional weight. The object transports us if we are precise about it. And if we choose an object that is inherently infused with these meanings, 
Think again of Proust's Madeleine cookie. For Proust, the cookie, this very simple object, was able to transport him back to his childhood in a way that years of having willed his memory to do so was unable to. But we can only see the world. We are only able to properly look and notice if we are not distracted or busy. Same goes for conjuring memoir involuntaire. This will only occur by chance, and a chance occurrence not among frenetic activity, but in the midst of boredom, of doing nothing. Otherwise, our conscious will be too busy, too distracted to notice. And without downtime, one is always in what Benjamin called day-to-day goal-oriented living, which destroys the possibility of memoir involuntaire, which for Benjamin is constructed in the night and destroyed by daylight, as he writes in his essay on the image of Proust. I'm going to read you a little section from that. However, with our purposeful activity and even more our purposeful remembering, each day unravels the web, the ornaments of forgetting. This is why Proust finally turned his days into nights, devoting all his hours to undisturbed work in his darkened room with artificial illumination so that none of those intricate arabesques might escape him. What Benjamin is describing as involuntary memory is a weaving which is the result of remembrance and forgetting. A weaving, Benjamin writes, construed in the night and destroyed by daylight. Specifically, it is the day-to-day goal-oriented living that destroys this intricate web. Describing Proust's writing practice, Benjamin writes the following. And is not this work of spontaneous recollection in which remembrance is the woof and forgetting the warp a kind of counterpart to Penelope's work rather than its likeness? For here the day unravels what the night has woven. When we awaken each morning, we hold in our hands, usually weakly and loosely, but a few fringes of the tapestry of lived life as loose focus as forgetting. Which returns us to my dream and its two aspects. The dream, a kind of story, a sort of hollow shell in which experience can be hidden and then transported to me. The dream has both aspects then, or my dream, let's say, and Benjamin's concept of Proust's writing, a kind of weaving of both voluntary and involuntary memory, is a form of writing I can use, we can use, to convey both the story, the actual fact of what happened, and also the experience of it, the trace or the remnant. In terms of a poetics, this might be translated as a combination of objects from the concrete world and something inexplicable. Use of language that is able to convey experience, what we may also call the mystical or mysterious, or what Don Delilah refers to simply as language. In interviews, Delilah describes his own writing as being grounded in reality and his writing process as a strict adherence to language, which means for him, for for us on the sentence, the concrete reality, in other words, and the mystical language combined. Both types of the memories Benjamin alludes to are necessary for the writer to retrieve and carry history and memory into the present through their writing and bring this lived experience to the reader. Without memoir and volunteer, the work is flat, the writing akin to the writing found in newspapers. Benjamin describes newspaper writing, writing that uses only memoir volunteer as an intentional use of such writing in order to separate facts from experience in order that the reader not experience what she is reading. Benjamin writes, if it were the intention of the press to have the reader assimilate the information it supplies as part of his own experience, it would not achieve its purpose. On the other hand, when writing is constructed entirely of memoir and volunteer, without any exclusion of the material world, the writing tends to be a form of wordplay, word salad, meaningless, existing entirely in the poet's imagination, and thus inaccessible to the reader, not connected to the real world. But when both types of memory are included in the work, this web, or what Benjamin calls textum, is the prose of what Benjamin calls a storyteller, one who weaves their own experience through their writing, and as a result of this weaving, They drag their community as well as their community's historical and cultural references along with them. Which is to say that when we write from our experience, utilizing both types of memory, we automatically insert or reinsert our history back into the world. Though on the surface such writing, writing from the eye, may seem self-centered, self-indulgent, it is through this writing that one is able to lift one's community and its history out of silence back into discourse in an experiential way.
As opposed to writing with distance, constructing writing entirely of facts or with the speaker outside the world she is describing, which results in a marginalization and often moralization of the lives being described, the result of which is a akin to the writing Benjamin describes in newspaper writing, sterile, goal-oriented, and clinical. The point of Benjamin's storyteller is not simply to convey information, as Benjamin writes in some motifs in Baudelaire. This is what he writes. It is not the object of the story to convey a happening per se, which is the purpose of information. Rather, it embeds it in the life of the storyteller in order to pass it on as experience to those listening. So it's important here to differentiate the the contemporary idea of storytelling, which has been um, is very popular and it's been commodified now, people use it in their Instagram or Twitter or of course there's the TED Talks right or the way that people sell their books or their artwork. It's all through this personal story, which is actually a narration right. It is stepping outside of the experience, writing about themselves as if they are a commodity. This is not what Benjamin is talking about. Benjamin is actually talking about a way of writing, I think he would argue, is more elliptical and does not um, contextualize, does not narrate, but through um, its, um, through the writing, even if it's uh, elliptical, um, and the objects included, it becomes experiential. And going back to Benjamin's own writing, as I began during this podcast describing, right, his own writing is very... Um, can be very difficult because there is no context, right? He's not contextualizing what he's saying. There's not a, a guiding voice explaining, right? Rather, what you get are sort of the raw material and you work your way through. And it is through that working through this kind of raw material that the reader has an experiential experience, right? And, and I think this is what we're talking about here, right? So it's not about uh, narrating my own life or narrating you know, whatever artwork I'm working on. Rather, it's about providing the raw material, which for me is always um, this combination of these two kinds of memory, the actual objects, and then a way of um, working with language to convey the, um, the unsayable, combining those two. And then you have this kind of experiential and the reader reads the work and uh, has an experience, they smell or feel um, these I, these um, experiences, but don't necessarily know what's happening because the actual um, fact, right, going back to newspapers, is less important than the experience. So it is through this storytelling created through an amalgamation of mo both of these types of memories of material reality and what I've been calling the mysterious that the writer can drag her history into the work and by doing so, she can at the same time archive this otherwise often forgotten history. And now I'm talking, of course, about the working class history, right? How we've been left out of um, history. And if we make work, whatever kind of work this is, right, theoretical or, um, or studio art or music or, you know, even whatever type it is, we are by making the work, right, in a sense, simply by making our work, we are already... Um, engraving our history back into history. We're already putting it back. By lifting and dropping objects, for example, from our daily quotidian lives into our work, we are also already automatically dra dragging our lost histories with us. And by dropping objects from our everyday lives into our work, we are in the process weaving in our memories, both memoir voluntaire and memoir involuntaire. As Benjamin writes, Experience is indeed a matter of tradition in collective existence as well as private life. It is less a product of facts firmly anchored in memory than of a convergence in memory of accumulated and frequently unconscious data. In another of Benjamin's essays, Thesis on the Philosophy of History, which we'll be talking about next time, Benjamin describes a topic of history explaining that, quote, history is the subject of a construction whose site is not homogeneous empty time, but time filled with now time, yet sight. In a footnote to the essay, Hannah Arendt notes that Benjamin's use of the term Yetzeit is not simply an equivalent to the German word Gegenwart that is present. Rather, he is thinking of the mystical Nogstans, which refers to eternal existence, time not subject to the limitations of time. For Benjamin, then, Yetzeit describes a concept of time filled with revolutionary promise opposed to empty, homogeneous time. The history that shows things, quote, as they really were, unquote, was, he writes, 
quote, the strongest narcotic of the century, unquote. This history is a history that is told by the victors and then passed down through generations. But as writers, as artists, as thinkers, we can interrupt this concept of history by utilizing Benjamin's two concepts of memory in our own work. By writing about our lives as they are actually lived, as a result, we will be recording our history, which is to say our community's history, back into the world for the working class who have been removed from social discourse, have been removed from history. The type of work Benjamin is describing carries the possibility of emancipation. In a recent interview, the British filmmaker Mark Jenkin was asked, there are elements of documentary like realism in the way you shoot the process of fishing, but you also give the film a mythic and spiritual quality. In response, Jenkins said, that's what I find is missing in a lot of stuff that I watch, that spirituality. It's not a religious thing, but some kind of otherness within it. This otherness correlates to what Benjamin refers to as memoir and voluntaire, the inexplicable, visceral, what Lacan calls the real. This quality, when combined with aspects of the concrete of reality, creates a kind of texture or fabric with which we can relay our lives and, by extension, the lives of our families, communities, and history. It is through this textum that the work, that the working class can draw the working class back into social discourse. That's all the time we have for now. Thank you again for tuning into the Melancholy of Class podcast and for listening to Repeater Radio. Please do tune in to the other wonderful shows on this station. And remember, you can email me um, with any questions or comments, any thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. My email is themelancholyofclass at gmail.com. Please do. Um, and I will see you back here in two weeks for a fourth installment of the podcast where we'll be discussing Walter Benjamin's essay, Thesis on the Philosophy of History. We'll be closing again with some more Jason Molina. Enjoy the song and enjoy the next two weeks. And I will meet you back here again in two weeks. Thank you for listening.
Listen. 